0: Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My
1: name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura
0: and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University.
1: On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder.
0: Hey, Laura. Hey, Sarah. We have a really spooky
1: Halloween special. A special Ivy League murders Halloween special.
0: And what, you know, what decent Halloween special doesn't take place in Salem, Massachusetts? Yeah, no, it has to. Yeah. It has to,
1: especially if you're from New England.
0: About 140 years after the last witch was hung, Salem would be steeped in mystery and controversy once again. On the cool spring night of April 6, 1830, Captain Joseph White lay asleep in his stately brick home on Essex Street in Salem. A silent assassin slipped into his house and stole up his grand staircase. Perhaps the assassin paused just a moment and gazed upon Captain Smith. Perhaps Smith stirred and observed his murderer before he was bludgeoned and stabbed 13 times in the heart. In his book, Exquisite Wickedness, author Andrew Amelinx believes that the murder of Captain White, as well as a second contemporaneous murder, inspired Edgar Allan Poe to write The Telltale Heart. Andrew is a true crime reporter and has written two other books. Welcome, Andrew. You are a total Renaissance man and a dandy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love that yeah, you write you. about men's fashion, cannabis, and really like our favorite, true crime. You must be the best Thanks. dinner
1: guest ever.
2: Oh, you know, I am.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> what drew you to this particular case?
2: You know, I started off as a crime reporter for a small newspaper in Hudson, New York, there was two ads in the newspaper that piqued my interest. One was for a crime reporter, and the other one was for the for a, a goat herding gig for uh, Coach Farms. <laughs> and Coach Farms never called me back, so I ended up as a crime reporter. The Berkshire Eagle in Pittsfield for about five years.
1: Did you discover this case and it just struck you? Uh, I was looking for something
2: that was a little more, had a little more punch to it, something that Combined literature and true crime. And I've always been a huge Edgar Allan Poe fan ever since I was a little kid. And I thought, you know, I would love to write about Poe. So I started doing research and it appeared that there was a connection between this case in Salem and the Telltale Heart. And then, you know, f- the further I went into the research, it, you know, definitely rang true that these, that these cases, the case and, and the, and the story were related. So this
0: pretty brutal murder of Captain Joseph White takes place April 6th of 1830. Someone broke into his house. They bludgeoned him. They stabbed him multiple times. So the next morning, Captain White's servants find a window open and see that somebody has broken in. Right. And they, they rush up to Captain White's bedroom to tell
1: him, and they find him. Could you tell us who was Captain White? Sure. I, yeah. I mean, he, he was both revered and disliked in Salem, and he was a very wealthy man who made his money in a not so savory way. So, can you kind of just tell our listeners who he was?
2: Yeah. He, uh, so, he was really, I mean, so at the time, Salem was like probably the most important port in the country it made its wealth on shipping to asia to africa europe and he was he was a major ship owner and he also had ties to the illegal slave trade the importation of slaves had been federally banned in 1808 and and
0: massachusetts had outlawed it in in 1783 right yeah well yeah exactly He was involved in the Caribbean slave trade. And the Caribbean slave trade was particularly brutal. This was all men, African slaves, that they brought to the Caribbean on sugar plantations and literally worked these men to death. It was horrific. And this is what what Captain White was involved in.
1: Exactly. No, so when he's found murdered, I would assume it, there were a lot of people who disliked him. He was powerful, but he wasn't the most popular man in Salem.
2: Right. Just to give you a little background on him, at the time he was 82, he was a widower. Just to give you a, an idea of what kind of guy he was, he allowed his niece Mary Beckford, who was widowed, to live with him, but he treated her as a servant. And he used his money to control his family. If if somebody did something he disliked, he would write up a new will did that happen frequently yes it did yeah it was it was it was not unusual for him to rewrite his will depending on his mood
0: we actually went up to his house on essex Mm -hmm. street in salem i mean it is this big beautiful brick i think it's federalist or something it is just Mm -hmm. this gorgeous structure on essex street and i sort of picture him like the scrooge of of, of salem <laughs> like you know if the scrooge had not been visited by you know christmas past <laughs> and future
1: kind of thing yeah yelling you know, out, you know, yelling right. out of the shutter for <laughs> the kids to step snow, yeah, snowballs okay.
0: <laughs> you know so i i feel like he was one of and you had written in your book too that people in salem were very closely knit he wasn't yep. the most popular guy but he was kind of revered he was one of the pillars kind of of Salem society. So his murder must've just absolutely rocked Salem in general.
2: Yeah. It was uh, definitely the biggest thing that had happened to Salem since the witch trials at the time. There really wasn't a police apparatus in place. And there was definitely not a detective unit of any type. In fact, the first detective unit was created in Boston in 1846. formed this thing called the committee of vigilance or vigilance committee. And it was made up of the elite of Salem, many of whom, or most of them, had ties to the murder victim. And White's nephew, Stephen White, who had just been elected to the Massachusetts legislature, bankrolled the whole thing. There were thoughts that there was some sort of roving band of violent criminals roaming the streets. They had a lot of different theories of of who it was. They certainly didn't think it was somebody that was close to the victim.
0: And what was sort of the first break in the
2: case? The first break came when a mysterious extortion letter was sent to the wrong person. It really kind of unraveled the whole thing. The letter was from a small time crook named John Palmer, and it was meant for a a young man named Joe Knapp, but it was accidentally sent to Joe Knapp's father, who had the same name. And he turned it over to the vigilance committee. And when Palmer was arrested, he told the committee that two brothers, friends of his, named Dick and George Crown and Shield, were involved in the murder.
1: And what were the Knapp's relationship to the victim? So Joe Knapp was married to
2: the victim's grandniece, Mary Beckford Knapp. And she, the victim, Joseph White, was angry about their relationship, but he didn't want her to marry Joe Knapp. So there was already this tension between the victim and and Joe Knapp. Both the Crown and Shields and the Knapps were from well-connected families in Salem, sort of part of the elite. Basically, John Palmer, who uh, the extortionist, he sort of in on the plot and then backed out. And he had learned that Dick, Crown, Crown and Shield, was, was the one who actually went and... Committed the, the murder, and it was um, at the behest of Joe and Frank Knapp, and uh, as they further they got into it, it was come to find out it was sort of a Joe just talking off the top of his head to his brother, saying I wouldn't mind if old Joe White got knocked off, so I could cash in on the on my wife's inheritance, which he assumed would through through her he would eventually come into some inheritance
1: so that's the motive and they are subsequently arrested and really i think what strikes so many of us about this uh about your book and about the the case is really more the trial
2: the prosecution thinks joe's going to turn state's evidence he decides he's not going to the go last last minute and so frank who is tried first he I mean in a, in a weird way, he acts by Joe not test testifying he actually uh helps the prosecution's case because he if he would have told the court everything he knew, it would have shown that Frank had not been at the actual scene of the murder he was he shows up later, but the prosecution uses come up with this theory that Frank was actually much more heavily involved in the actual murder because that's the only way they're going to be able to hang
0: him. I see. Okay. Bring us to the trial a little bit, because this is the really sensational part of this. The Knapps also have a third brother, correct? Fippin. Fippin. Who's he's, a kind of, Har- he's, he's kind of a good, the good nap
2: right? Yeah. yeah <laughs> good yeah.
0: nap brother. Sure. you know
2: He was a Harvard Law grad. Uh, he was just starting his career when this happened. Uh, But he uses connections to get uh, two other highly respected lawyers who were also Harvard grads, Franklin Dexter and William Gardner. They represent the, the Knapp brothers at trial. But prosecution calls in a hired gun, calls in Daniel Webster, who at the time was considered, I mean, he was considered by his contemporaries and even later on to be one of the greatest orators of his generation. He was huge. He was like, uh, you know, and he served in all these different roles. At the time, he was a sitting U.S. senator from Massachusetts, which is, I mean, imagine if you had like Elizabeth Warren sitting as a, at the prosecution table.
0: Yes. And, uh, and this is something that, that Dexter kind of says, wait a minute, you guys are hiring this. Just yeah. to mention too, with that, there is an Ivy League connection with Daniel Webster because he It went to Exeter and he was a Dartmouth Dartmouth man, as they would say back in those days. So he -hmm. he definitely, I mean, he's really kind of a rock star. And I'm just going to read this one Webster quote from your book and that the, um, in talking about this case, the object was money, the crime murder, the price blood, the tale of silver was counted out, the price fixed. Here is the money. There is the victim grains of silver against ounces of blood. Here's Webster describing the murder scene in an almost cinematic way. He's bringing the judge and jury into Captain White's house the night of the murder.
2: At the blessed hour, when all other repose is soundest, the murderer goes to his work. In the silence and darkness, he enters the house. He does not falter. There is no trembling of the limbs. His feet sustain him. He passes through the rooms, treads lightly through the entries, ascends the stairs, arrives at the door. There is no pause. He opens it. The victim is asleep. His back is towards him. His deaf ear is uppermost. His temples bare. The moonlight plays upon his silver locks. One blow and the task is accomplished. Now mark his resolution, his self-possession, his deliberate coolness. He raises the aged arm, plunges the dagger to the heart not once but many times, replaces the arm, replaces the bedclothes, feels the pulse, is satisfied that his work is perfected and retires from the chamber. He retraces his steps. No eye has seen him, nor ear has heard him. is master of his own secret, and he escapes in secret. That was a dreadful mistake. The guilty secret of murder can never be saved.
0: So who is the actual murderer in this case?
2: So, yeah, Dick Crown and Shield really kind of wild character he and his brother were infamous in Salem uh, they set up a underground bar where all the i mean even as far away as Boston these you know, these young men of good families would come to carouse and get loaded and uh, he was you know he his dick definitely had i mean he, he definitely had sociopathic tendencies he and when, he was, when it was offered to him to, to, to pull this murder off, he didn't hesitate. You know, he, it and was, it really uh, wasn't, for, it wasn't for profit, right? It was well, just I kind mean, of... He, yeah, it was like a promise that he would get a little something when, when Joe came into his inheritance. It definitely seemed like this was more of like a thrill kill than, than anything else.
0: So tell us what happens to all of these players, both the Cronin Shields and the NAPs, in this... Uh,
2: in yeah. What is their
1: fate at the end of this saga?
2: Well, three of them end up dead. Mm-hmm. Two are hanged by the state. One is hanged by his own hand. I'm not going to say which.
1: Leave yeah. a little mystery. Uh, but... Uh,
2: and then the fourth. So George Crown and Shield is the only way that... Uh, the only one that um, gets away scot-free. He's found not guilty and he moves to Boston and lives his life as, as if nothing has, had ever occurred.
1: It's really a fascinating story. It is. And I, I'm just going to quote something from
0: your book, which I think connects Poe to write about the connection between Webster and Poe. And you say, whether Poe was aware of Captain White's murder and the subsequent trials of the Knapp brothers and George Cronenshield at the time they occurred, is not known, but at some point he came across Webster's speech and learned about the murder. Webster's description of Dick Cronenshield as a calculating ice-cold killer would help Poe create the nameless narrator of of the Telltale Heart. So, and also, just to sort of finish up, you can really see Webster's influence on Poe in the following passage from Telltale Heart.
2: When I had waited a long time, very patiently, Without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it saw it with perfect distinctness in a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I can see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot.
0: So that's the whole idea behind The Telltale Heart is that, and I think this is what Webster inspired in in Poe, is that it's from the viewpoint of the murderer. The Telltale Heart becomes the first murder mystery, essentially. What I find interesting is that the murderer, in, in A Telltale Heart, the murderer can't, both can't live with the old man's eye. That's his, the mm-hmm. object of his obsession that he has to get rid of. But he also can't live with the guilt of the murder, either, and ends up confessing. The, do you know, happen to know, just to finish up, do you, uh, do you know if Poe and Webster ever met?
2: Uh, you know, I don't I, I have uh, not found anything indicating that they ever did. And yeah, I, I, don't, I don't believe they did. Yeah, yeah, but, okay. But he, you know uh, there's there's a lot of evidence that um, Poe came across Webster's final summation for the nap in the nap trial in a newspaper called from New York called Brother Jonathan. It was uh, in 1841, right a couple years before he couple of years before he actually wrote the Telltale Heart and I think it uh, there was uh, there's a lot of evidence that he sort of where he first came across it I think the the newspaper article said it was the greatest oration of in history or something so it, uh, mm-hmm. it definitely would have mm-hmm. would have um, piqued his interest sure, sure of course
0: and so where can our listeners find your book Andrew? you can find it on
2: Amazon you know Barnes Noble. it's available there.
0: We'll attach links
1: as well for your book. Great.
0: Thank you very, very much, Andrew. Really appreciate Thank your you. time.
2: Thanks so much, Andrew. Yeah. Really, really appreciate Thank you. it. you. It's been really okay. fun. And I'm uh, looking forward to, to hearing the finished podcast.
1: Okay. Right. Thanks, Andrew. Thank Happy Halloween. Thank you. You too. Murder. <laughs>
2: Murder.